Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. And if you're looking for inspiration, look no further than this episode. Today's guest is retired Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. He is a former U.S. Army Green Beret with tours all over the world, including Colombia, Iraq, and multiple tours in Afghanistan. He is a warrior storyteller and the founder of Rooftop Leadership, where he shares the rapport building skills he learned in special forces to help today's leaders make better human connections in high stakes low trust engagements. Scott is the number one international best-selling author of Game Changers, Going Local to Defeat Violent Extremists. Uh, he also has written a couple children's books. And the one book that uh, led me to Scott was this, Operation Pineapple Express, which we're going to talk about today. This book details uh, an incredible story of a group of Americans who uh, undertook one mission, one last mission to bring uh, Afghan refugees out of Afghanistan as as the fall of Kabul, as Afghanistan was beginning to, to crumble. Um, we also get into Scott's play, which is called Last Out. Uh, we talk a bit about how he wrote that. He also acts in it. He tours it. Um, Scott is a motivational speaker. He's done TED Talks. I'm going to link all of uh, his information in the description. Please check it out. Um, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I had a very short time with Scott uh, due to time constraints, but we got into a lot of good stuff. It's a very meaty conversation, um, and I think that you'll really enjoy it. I know I did. Uh, so please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And please reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any thoughts, questions, or if you have any ideas for upcoming content that you'd like to see on the Scuttlebutt. Uh, always happy to hear from our supporters and viewers. And thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Uh, enjoy the show. Scott Mann, thank you so much for joining the Scuttlebutt uh, for this episode. Really excited to dive into everything that you have going on, uh, both your book, Operation Pineapple Express, uh, and your play. Um, yeah. Everybody uh, listening to the Scuttlebutt knows about my theater background. So when I found out that you wrote a play and you actually acted in it, I was like, wow, okay, cool. I, <laughs> I got a lot more to talk about uh, with you as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us again. And could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Sean. My name's Scott Mann. I'm a uh, Army veteran. I spent about almost 23 years in the U.S. Army and about 18 of that as a Special Forces officer, uh, often referred to as the Green Berets. Um, I, I'm married, have three boys, uh, all grown now. And uh, I spent the first 10 years of my career in SF working in Central and South America during in the 90s during the drug war, which was pretty sporty. And then when 9-11 kicked off, spent the, the rest of my career really either in Afghanistan or getting ready to go back over there. Um, and why did you choose Army? Well, you know what? I was actually um, fortunate enough. I grew up in a little bitty town in Mount Ida, Arkansas, and mm -hmm. we didn't even have a stoplight, really small town. And I was a runt of a kid, I tell you, um, really small. And this, this Green Beret walked into our soda shop one day and with all his regalia on. And the minute I saw this guy, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And he sat down with me and he started to explain that Green Berets, what they do and how they're different than the SEALs, where the SEALs will go in on a target and take the target down and come off very quickly, usually do it unilaterally. And he explained to me that Green Berets are very different. They parachute in with a small team and they actually immerse themselves in the culture and the language and the environment. And they build relationships, much like mm. a kind of a T.E. Lawrence kind of thing. And then with those relationships over time, when the relationships are strong enough, they mobilize those individuals to stand up on their own against uh, against the bad guys. And so they help the little guy stand up against the big guy through relationships. I tell people that the Green Beret is kind of a combination of um, John Wick, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and the Verizon guy. Um, <laughs> you know, relationship-based connectors who happen to be lethal, but they don't lead with that. They only do that when they have to. It's really those connections with uh with indigenous people that they can then mobilize for strategic effect that for me was everything sean i knew that's what i wanted to do and i spent the rest of my life chasing that dream so interesting so many of the veterans we talk about with the veterans breakfast club uh do say like ah, i saw the uniform and i knew that's what exactly what i wanted to do um so it was something about him how long did it take you after you enlisted to become a green beret so it really you know, seeing him was the first spark, but when he sat down with me and shared the mission with me mm -hmm. of by, with, and through indigenous people, that's when I was like pinned to the mat. Now I was 14, you know, and I, and I think 
some people thought I was crazy because I was such the scrawny little kid, but I was obsessed with it. I was never going to, I started looking it up on Encyclopedia Britannica and watching every movie I could. And mm-hmm. I knew that's what I was going to do. And when I, when I, when I, I went the officer route, so I was commissioned through ROTC. Yeah. And then when you come out as a second Lieutenant, you have to wait another five years before you're even eligible to try out. Mm-hmm. So I had a five-year waiting period and I went to other hard schools like Ranger school and air assault school, failed every one of them, I think at least twice. Interesting. Um, and then ultimately made it through the qualification course, which I also failed multiple, multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately around 1996, I was awarded my Green Beret and assigned to a team and, and never looked back. What was it like finally getting that Green Beret? I think it was probably one of the proudest moments of my life in the mm-hmm. sense that I had gone through so much failure to get it. And, 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 and that included just overcoming my size, overcoming my own self-sabotage and resistance and you know, the, the, the failed attendance at these different schools and just the somehow trying to keep going and then ultimately fulfilling on what was a dream that almost seemed unattainable at times. And, and it was, so it's very, it was very special. And, and I honestly can say that the years that followed that the 18 years after putting that thing on my head, it was better than I dreamed it would be. And not many people get to say that about their life. How did you keep going? How, what, what kept you driving? Even though you'd, you'd fail and, and take a step back, what kept you pushing? I mean, I think it more than any, my, my wife, Monty, who I've been married to for 26 years now. And so she was, you know, my faith, mm-hmm. certainly. But teammates, more than anything else, I believe Stephen Pressfield in his, in his book, The Warrior Ethos, he talks about typically warriors they don't fight for god and country and all these lofty ideals they fight for the man on and woman to his left and right and and i can tell you that that for me really kept me going at times when i wanted to quit in ranger school or i wanted to you know maybe retire or resign early and um, there was always somebody at my shoulder who kept me going and and who helped me get a sense of myself even when i didn't have one was it everything that you thought it would be in all of that lead up, all that anticipation, you finally get it. And, uh, you know, what's your first mission as a Green Beret like? Uh, the first one was actually to uh, Peru and Ecuador were actually in a shooting war. And I was literally the day I graduated, they said, you're not going to language school. You already speak some Spanish. Mm-hmm. You are deploying to the Peruvian Ecuadorian border where there's a conflict right now and you're going to live out in an outpost and you're going to try to keep these guys apart from each other and I thought oh my god you know like I'm brand new um but at the same time I was kind of excited to get down there and and be immersed in a real world mission like that and be given that kind of autonomy and it was crazy it was like going into Jurassic Park where this um, conflict was happening triple canopy jungle and you know, helicoptering in and, and literally getting dropped off just by myself with um, Peruvian and Ecuadorian soldiers literally like right there across from each other and a, a, a Peruvian. And then there were a couple of other uh, Peruvian Ecuadorian officers in the same hooch with me. Mm-hmm. So you literally, you're like that catalyst that's trying to keep them apart. They would get into fist fights, try to draw their weapons. And, and you know, here I am right fresh out of the Q course. So, and it never really stopped after that. Every mission after that was some kind of crazy sporty endeavor into a low trust environment where it was all about human connection. It was all about trying to um, just go local and meet people where they were and, and try to find local solutions. And I loved it. I, I mean, it, 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 it tapped into every um, primary instinct that I had as a human and and what I love to do in and uh, every mission although unique and different was was better than the next um whenever things would would start to hit the fan like they'd start to throw down how did you navigate that as sort of you know trying to get them to see eye to eye trying to work with that community that that had to have been insanely difficult well, anytime you're in a high stakes situation like that in a high emotion situation, and this is true in the civilian world too, right? I mean, when we go into emotions, we get angry. Anger is a secondary emotion or we get afraid. You know, there's an old saying that anger and fear make you stupid because you lose your perspective for higher intelligence function. The, the aperture for perspective goes like down to the size of a, sh- a soda straw because you're in survival mode your autonomic nervous system's kicking in, the sympathetic nervous system, and you're just trying to survive. 
So when that happens, you know, the, the things that you have to do is you have to, one, you have to lead yourself in that moment. You can't get caught up in that churn. You have to, you know, adjust your own state, feel your feet on the floor, do some good diaphragmatic breaths and keep your, your levels where they need to be. And then you need to try to manage the emotional temperature in that room. How do you get both parties down to a parasympathetic state where they're ready to listen to each other? Um, so those were the kind you, and you know, they train you how to do that in, in special forces. And most of the time you're with a team of guys who are very senior, who have seen this kind of thing before and are going to help you and advise you on what you need to do. And you work together as a team to do it. And it's really hard and it can be really scary. And that's why I think, you know, during the war on terror, I believe the number I saw was green berets had more killed in action than all of the other special operations, uh, outfits combined. And the reason was because they're living in these contentious low trust areas where it's so volatile and you're, you're persistently exposed to it. It's like, it's like doing community co policing in gangland, you know, I mean, it's just going to go South a lot, but you just try to keep managing the emotional temperature, getting people ready to listen to each other. And at times you gotta, you gotta throw hands or draw down on people. That's the other side of it. It is, it is also a very nasty contentious environment. And knowing when to do that, when to flick that switch, that's why I use those avatars of John Wick, Lawrence of Arabia, and the Verizon guy, because, you know, at any given time, that cocktail that you got to mix up may be 70% Wick and 20% Lawrence. Um, and that's just how it is. And, yeah. and you got to know how to mix that thing and, and how to bring the right mix of that cocktail to that particular engagement. Uh, so speaking of engagement, flash forward to Afghanistan. Uh, what was your role there? How many deployments did you have? Take us a bit through your time there because Operation, Pettis, uh, Operation Pineapple Express is mainly about the end of the Afghanistan war. I spent, I did three tours in Afghanistan and a range of short tours, um, you know, uh, more than some, but there were, there were the people that did a lot more than me, but I spent a lot of time there and the, the, the bulk of my work, like many Green Berets in that country was, was working with indigenous Afghans to stand up on their own. Some of that included working with Afghan partner forces like the commandos and the special operations forces like my friend Nizam. Some of it um, in involved working out in rural villages, no kidding, like Magnificent Seven, um, living there, growing the beards out and working with village elders to, to stand up a militia in their village to defend against the Taliban. But at the end, the common through line, Sean, was this working by, with, and through partners, yeah. formal and informal. And you built, everything was on social capital. Everything was relationships based. You built trust when risk was low. When the Taliban were not attacking, you were out in the fields uh, helping with low-tech agriculture, or you were in a, in a jirga, in a shura, sitting in a circle trying to help resolve uh, a dispute over water or you were running a medical clinic to administer immunizations to kids that never saw a doctor. Mm -hmm. But the idea was that you built trust when risk is low and you leveraged it when risk was high. So when the attacks would come on the village at night, you would run up on those rooftops and, and, and over time, one, two, three, five, seven, ten farmers would start to join you up there. And all of a sudden the whole community is fighting back. That's why I got the term rooftop leadership. And yeah. Um, that, that approach is what I did for the bulk of my career in and out of Afghanistan, doing that kind of work. Did you find a lot of success in doing that? Was there, um, I mean, obviously there'd be setbacks, you know, I, we, if anybody knows anything about Afghanistan, um, and the Shuras and, and trying to work with the elders and trying to, you know, combat the Taliban, um, you know, how, how did you again, navigate, uh, the community there and, and gain that trust? Yeah, it was a very, very difficult thing to do. And I can't say that I did it well all the time. You know, it was a constant, the, the cultural differences were immense. And, you know, it was a country that's been at war for 40 years. And um, how we grow up here in the United States versus how they grow up in a status society is radically different. So it wasn't always easy. What, what I tried to do, and I, I write about this in my book, uh, Game Changers, is I always tried to go local. I tried to meet people where they were, not where I wanted them to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to, to really get a sense of what they valued, try to be, there's, it's kind of like being relatable to their pain and relevant to their goals. Hmm. 
the end of the day. That's yeah. that was kind of the, the operating system that that we tried to use is how can we be relevant to their goals and relatable to their pain while still meeting our own goals. Mm-hmm. Um, but our own goals were mostly vested in them standing up on their own. And so finding ways that it made sense to them to want to stand up on their own, finding ways to understand some of the things that were pain points for them that we couldn't, you know, for example, liberal democracy. They had no use for liberal democracy because they had an egalitarian system of elders that managed disputes, that handled farming. And democracy, by definition, is about individuals exercising their own power. And so it really ran counter to the very civil society mechanism that they had valued for hundreds of years. Now, could they ultimately move to it? Maybe. But we were so disconnected from their pain on that that we tried to push a square peg into a round hole. So, you know, unfortunately, there were a lot of uh, missteps along the way. And I think we kind of built a house of cards when we were trying to build an antibody to the to Al Qaeda. But but overall, I mean, I think that the time there and the experience there and what was done there was was definitely worthwhile. And I think had we stayed the course and had we maintained our partnership relationship over the long term, you would have continued to see Afghanistan evolve as a responsible uh, kind of counter-terror partner in the world in a place that we really needed it. Unfortunately, we go to the the fall of Kabul and the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, This is, uh, you know, a lot of what your Operation Pineapple Express is about. Talk us through sort of the lead up to that. You'd gained a lot of trust and a lot of friendships uh, of people that you uh, care about and wanted to get out. Um, What were those days like? Well, and let's not forget, too, that, you know, we were struck on 9-11-2001 by a terror group named Al-Qaeda who planned, resourced, trained, and projected that attack from Afghanistan, right? And it was the worst terror attack in our nation's history. And we looked at each other after 9-11, and we said, that's never going to happen again. And and because there was no substantive ground intelligence capability to warn us of it, and there was no partnership force to do something about it. And we were not in that country at the time. So, you know, the over the horizon stuff just didn't work. And so we made a commitment as a country. We made a commitment as a military that we, that's never going to happen again. And so we spent 20 years fighting for and bleeding an intelligence capability and a, and a ground partner network that could be the antibody to violent extremism. And we did that. And we kept terror attacks away for 20 years, but we also built a coherent capability in doing that. Sean, we created these amazing relationships Mm -hmm. with the commandos, the Afghan special forces, the KKA interpreters who would literally walk through a minefield to put a tourniquet on a wounded Green Beret um, and get him out of there without even thinking about their own safety. And that's just one example. Over and over again, most special operators will tell you they're sitting here, including myself, because of the actions of an Afghan partner. So when Afghanistan started to collapse in 2021 in the spring, I was getting uh, texts from a young man named Nizam, an Afghan commando, Afghan special forces, had even gone to the U.S. special forces course. Mm-hmm. I had worked with him in 2010 when we were doing that village program. We had become good friends. He was shot through the face defending a U.S. special forces team and warning them of an ambush. He was thro- shot three times in the chest by ISIS, conducting unilateral operations against them when we started to pull back. And those are just a few examples of how this guy, this, the level of this guy's loyalty. And I'd been retired for 10 years and he was sending me signal messages in the spring and summer of 2021 that things were falling apart. I was getting a provincial play-by-play of collapse of each province. And it became pretty clear by you know June, July, uh, that the whole thing was going to collapse. And Nizam, my friend who had put in for a special immigration visa a year past, had heard nothing. And now he's hiding in his uncle's house like Anne Frank. The Taliban are texting him, sending him messages that they know where he is. And um, it became very clear to me after Kabul collapsed on August 15th that no one was coming for him. No one was going to help him. And um, all I could think about was him. It's like he was that one friend that had reached out to me. And, and everything that I had done in that war seemed to hang in whether or not this young man lived or died. And part of it is your training of no man left behind, right? No man left behind and this emphasis in the special forces community on partnership. 
you know, you don't, you don't leave your partners behind. Like you endure what they endure. You eat what they eat. You sleep where they sleep. You, 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 you go through what they go through and you sure as hell don't just walk away from them when it becomes inconvenient. And, and that, so what happened was for all of us, including myself, it became a moral injury. It became a violation of what one knows to be right. And even worse, it was a violation of what no one knows to be right by people we trusted. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was a, a decision of either get involved again. And I didn't really want to because I retired from the army because I felt like the careerism and the direction in Afghanistan was going the wrong way. So I retired as a Lieutenant Colonel and had moved on or get involved and try to help this young man and get sucked back into the whole thing. But I would rather do that than try to live with the fact that I didn't do anything. And so that's really what started the whole pineapple express thing. It's what started. I think most of the volunteer groups is a friend in trouble reaching out for help. What did your wife say? She was very supportive of you when you were, you know, trying to become a green beret, but then you retire and it's like, okay, maybe we can leave military life behind, but there's this other, there's this thing that you have to do. Yeah, that's a great question, Sean, and I appreciate you asking that. Mm -hmm. And I talk about this in the book, Sean, but it, it basically, you know, my wife, Monty, was afraid um, that I would go back to some of the dark places that I had gone in my transition. I had a very rough transition from the military. I was, um, I came close to taking my own life and, and um, it just wasn't good. And, and it took me a long time to move past that. And it took her a long time and us a long time to move past that. I mean, times when she was pulling me up off the floor yeah. and um, now she's thinking, Oh my God, like we're going to literally go back into this overnight. And, but she knew that there was no way that I couldn't do something to try to help Nizam. And when we got Nizam out and um, I thought that was it. Then my phone just started blowing up with other buddies who were SEALs and Rangers. And hey, I heard you got Nizam out. I'm working this interpreter. I'm working this commando. Can we work together? And Monty just kind of looked at me and she was like, I'll go start making supper, you know? And, yeah. and she knew, you know, she knew that this was now our life and that it was going to be a new experience. And we were, you know, our youngest son was about to go off to college. We were about to be empty nesters. I mean, we were finally at a place in our life where, you know, we could kind of move on and, and really enjoy um, what we had worked so hard to enjoy. And none of that really happened. And she was amazing. And I don't, I know that I couldn't have done any of this without her, but that's true for my entire military career in life. So yeah. um, I don't want to do any spoilers for the book. Can you talk a bit about how you got Nizam out? Sure. Um, so basically I looked at it and I thought, man, I'm, I'm a, I'm a storyteller. That's my trade now. I mean, I, I tell stories written orally. We were just about to launch our play again. And I thought, I don't really have the game to get him out by myself. I'm not going over there. So we're going to have to do it remote. So I just got on the phone and we talked about relationships, right? So mm -hmm. I, I called buddies who Green Berets and Washington insiders who the common thread was love of Nizam. And we put our heads together with our little seven person team and we started becoming his eyes and ears and we helped him move through the city. We used technology, we used pre-existing relationships with certain vehicles and, and you know, we put a plan together where we were just basically like his mission control center. Mm -hmm. um, and he, you know, he had to do a lot of the hard stuff, obviously, which was the tactical movements, getting through that crowd. Um, and then ultimately we used our relationships and connections to make a phone call inside the gate once he was within four feet of the perimeter. Uh, to get him pulled inside. And that was, you know, really challenging, but we did it. And, and the, the password that was told to us to tell him and, and the, right as his phone was running out of power and they were about to toss him out, the Marines was pineapple. And um, so we, we got him to, you know, declare that word. And, and, uh, and then task force pineapple was born out of that. That became like our, you know, our meme. Um, but, you know, I would tell people reading this book, when you, the first half of the book, you know, what I just told you doesn't give anything away. Like Nizam is the most amazing human being. Half of the book is about him and what he went through. And in re reading Nizam's story, Sean, what you'll do is it takes you through, you'll learn about Afghanistan. If you never served, you'll understand it in the most human way. You'll understand the 20-year the war better. You'll understand what the Afghan people went through better just by knowing Nizam's life. And then when you see what he did to get out, it's game changing. And then the rest of the book is post Nizam. Once we got him out, 
we looked at each other and we said, okay, let's scale it up and let's go big. And that's what the rest of the book is about. This is very much like a 21st century underground railroad and just using technology. Yeah, exactly. We called it that. And yeah, in fact, one of the guys that really created that design that was a Green Beret turned school teacher, mm-hmm. social studies named Zach up in Syracuse. And they had just taught a segment on Harriet Tubman. And he really brought the idea forward of, hey, why don't we create an underground railroad through the crowd using the sewage canal? And then there was a four foot hole in the fence that was guarded by guys from the 82nd who we had happened to connect to in trying to help a pregnant female get out. And they had said to us, hey, we've got some time. We can do a little bit more if you need it. So we had guys on the inside. We had a four foot hole in the fence and we had a mobility corridor that was this sewage canal. And we knew who these vetted or these at-risk people were. We knew where they were and they trusted us to help them move up to those link-up points. Yeah. So in other words, that was our value proposition to the, the, the uniformed guys who didn't know these individuals from anyone else. And so mm-hmm. when you brought all that together, it truly was an underground railroad. And in, in fact, the original name of it was Operation Harriet. How much trouble were the men in uniform there uh, potentially putting themselves in danger of? I know there's they were getting a lot from everywhere, not only just the people right outside the gate, but uh, from people like yourself, the people in your network, trying to get people through the crowd, dealing with the potential for danger, which eventually did explode. But, you know, did they put themselves at risk uh, to, you know, in the hierarchy? Could they have gotten in trouble from higher ups because they were trying to get people through? Yeah. They, these individuals put their careers at risk. There's no doubt about it. Wow. Uh, And they were mostly junior officers and sergeants Mm -hmm. that did this. And they were looking out at this sea of humanity. They were looking out at these people holding their babies up who were suffocating. They looked at these women who were holding their little girl up who had just been trampled. You know, the desperation that they were looking into, imagine looking into that level of desperation of thousands of faces for days. Yeah. You know, and and they they were magnificent in how they conducted themselves. Their first responsibility was security of the airfield, which they did. But there were some who felt like they could do more. And, you know, it just so happened that this company commander and first sergeant, John and Jesse, um, were in a position where they had this four foot hole in the fence. We had connected to them. They had Hilux pickup trucks. They had a, a mechanism to get across the airfield and manifest rapidly for uh, departure. So all the pieces were in place. And, and, and what, what they didn't have, honestly, was a way to, res- to vet responsibly all of these people that were trying to get in. They had the mechanism at the hole in the fence. Mm-hmm. We had that though. We, had, we knew who these people were. We knew where they were and they trust us because we'd worked with them. And so what we agreed to, and John and Jesse said, look, we're, our phones are getting blown up. We need a plan. So we gave them a plan. It's like basically every period of darkness, we will send you a list of baseball cards with the picture of the commando, his family, their name information. They will move through that canal. And when they see a green chem light on you at the hole, they will hold up a pineapple on their phone. You will call out their name. Then you can pull them in knowing you've got the right people. So it was a, a plan that was executable. It was military in nature. So they, they you know, they, they felt comfortable in that. And these people were vetted and getting signals. Plus the people we were managing were commandos, special forces. Yes, they had their families with them. They were very good and very tactical. And that was the right combination to mitigate the risk, at least for the people we worked with. How much stress did you feel during that time? And I imagine you didn't sleep much. Didn't sleep much at all. Um, I felt a lot of stress like every other volunteer did. I, but it was a stress that was compounded with, you know, years of working in that war and a, a stress of, you know, where's the government? Why, isn't, why aren't they doing this? When are they going to come? Mm-hmm. Um, there was the stress of, for me personally, if I'm being super candid, it was the stress of, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, like I am way out over my skis. I should not be doing this. This is the State Department government special ops job. I'm not a special operator anymore. Right. You know, I'm a retired, I'm a storyteller. You know, I mean, like, I know how to do this kind of stuff, but I don't have a title. I don't have the resources. I don't have the authority. And, and so, yeah, it was a ton of stress in that regard. And by the way, these people who are out there in that mass of humanity, thousands of people in 107 degree temperature getting flashbangs thrown at them and getting trampled 
for three days with no water. Like they're all hanging out there because they think we have a plan. Yeah. And they think we're going to get them out, you know, and, and that added a whole new dimension to the stress levels. And that wasn't just me. That was all of the guides went through some version of that. And it, it, it profoundly affected them to the point of a level of moral injury in my assessment right now mm -hmm. that will eclipse the Vietnam generation in terms of impact. We have a large uh, network of Vietnam veterans who attend our Veterans Breakfast Club uh, events. Yeah. I would say that they are probably our biggest constituent base, uh, part of VBC. I believe they are at a point now in their lives where they want to talk about uh, the war. They, they want to talk about their experiences. And, and certainly after the fall of Kabul, we had many special programs where they, they were talking about how that made them feel after the fall of Saigon, how it brought up all these feelings, how it felt like history was repeating itself. Um, this idea of, of the moral injury, um, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but and I, you, you talk about being a storyteller now. How uh, are you working through the moral injury through storytelling? That's a great question. I, and I want to just throw a shout out to the Vietnam veterans. First of all, every time I came home from deployment in the airport, every person there to meet us just about was a Vietnam veteran mm -hmm. because they, they said that it's just not going to happen to these kids. You know, what happened to us is not going to happen to these kids. And, and I can't tell you how many Vietnam veterans mentored me through this war. Like I can't even, I can't even count. And whether it was doing the village engagement program or whether it was trying to figure out how to come over my own trauma, my own guilt, it was always a Vietnam veteran that was at my side every time. And, 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 you know, I think it will be the Vietnam generation that will help us, you know, come out of this and figure it out because they, unfortunately, they've been through it and treated so poorly, but yet they have so much dignity in class mm. that like, that once again, they're right there helping us figure this part out, which they should never have to live through again. So I'm just so grateful for them. I just, my God, what a national treasure we have in those human beings. I, I'm just in awe of them. Um, but to your point, um, how do, we, how am I kind of trying to move through that and heal? It is through storytelling. Our, our nonprofit, the hero's journey, uh, our whole focus is on uh, helping warriors and family members and first responders find their voice and tell their story as they transition out of service. And the reason for that is I had a very bad transition and had some mentors that showed me the power of storytelling, uh, to the point that I became a public speaker that I trained other veterans on how to do it. Once I realigned with my narrative as a warfighter, it really helped me see that stories, you can heal yourself. You can, you can reconnect with others. You can bridge that civil military gap. I think with the Vietnam uh, population, I think they figured that out too, that they realized that their storytelling skills had serious value in so many ways. And, and for me, I've, I've just gone full into that. I believe that, you know, even the study um, called After Kabul says that like two thirds of civilians and uh, veterans say we need less ceremonies and parades and more community engagement and storytelling events. Yep. And my biggest thing that we're doing is we run workshops for veterans on how to tell their stories from the stage and in daily life. And then our play Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret um, is kind of the ultimate tool that we use to travel around the country with veteran and military family members in the cast using theater as yeah. a way to validate and heal our veterans while simultaneously informing civilians on the cost of modern war. Can you talk a bit about Last Out? Um, again, I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves. It's only because of our, our sort of shortened time frame today, but really Last Out, I saw the trailer on YouTube. I'm happy to link it here in the description for anybody who, who hears that and says, Last Out, I haven't heard of that play, but uh, why did you decide to write it and uh, where does it perform? How's that for a midlife crisis, huh? I mean, it's, uh, I, I decided to write it as a way to heal myself. My, one of my mentors had written a one-person show about being an NFL football player and how he became that. And he, he just convinced me to do it. And it really was for me. I did a little reading of a scene at a community theater about a silly band that I, that I wear. And in the play, I, I, get, I talked, it was given to me by my, my son, Braden, it's called the Magic Silly Band. And I, and I became the silly band and told the story of how I went through Afghanistan with my owner and it just brought the place down and they were like, that's a play. So I kept going over, oh, took me about four years to write it. 
And uh, we finally got it up on its feet and uh, we cast it to an all veteran cast. I had never acted. So I, I went to New York for a year and studied under Larry Moss mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just worked, you know, off and on under him and Carl Bury and others. Um, but, you know, uh, we, we debuted it in 2018 on Veterans Day here in Tampa, Florida. And then we went on a tour to 16 cities. Um, and it's called Last Out Elegy of a Green Beret. But the whole storyline is basically a Green Beret named Danny Patton. He's a team sergeant. Uh, he's killed in the very first scene. And he wants to let go and ascend to the warrior resting place of Valhalla. But he's holding on to something and he can't let go. So his best friend, uh, Kenny, who was killed in the Pentagon on 9-11, comes down with a, a group of operators who are basically shapeshifters who died in other wars and they take Danny back through his life by becoming all the people who made his heart pump the most blood mm -hmm. and they take him back through so that he can figure out what he's holding on to and let go. And so in doing that, the audience goes for the full ride. You know, they go from the ride from the time Danny joined the army until the time he um, uh, joined SF 9-11 back and forth. And it toggles between his firebase and his living room. And it just it gets to the point towards the end of the play. You're not even sure where he is, and he's not either, which is really how we live this war. Um, and then we do a talk back after that. So if people want to watch it, oh, if, you go, if you go to scottman.com, I've got um, all my information and on everything. But lastoutplay.com, lastoutplay.com is our website. Uh, we're also on Google TV and Amazon Prime. It, we filmed it. Um, and we're going to be touring again. In, starting in January of 2023 to help heal from this Afghan abandonment. Um, and if you go to lastoutplay.com, you can catch our tour date. So you can either watch it video on Amazon Prime, Google TV, Apple TV, or Vudu, or you can get one of our tour stops and, uh, and come see us live. Technically, how much different was it writing your books as opposed to writing the play? Really different, really radically different in the sense that the book, you know, Operation Pineapple Express, I wrote that in the third person and I, and I did a bunch of interviews with Afghans and veterans. And I really saw myself as the storyteller, um, you know, who was almost just like, I was there, but I'm just, I'm just telling you the story um, as I saw it happen. And it's, these, are the, these people are the protagonists. Whereas with the play, you know, I, I took three team sergeants that I had known in combat that didn't make it home combined them into one composite character named Danny Patton, and then really wrote from, you know, what started as his point of view. Um, but then it became his wife's point of view and his son's point of view. And it, it went from a one person show into like this family's point of view. And I never saw that coming. And it was much more iterative. It was longer. It took me like four years. Whereas the pineapple book, we wrote that sucker in like six months uh, yeah. to make the anniversary of the collapse. So um, I guess there were some similarities on storytelling and, you know, emotional resonance and what's personal is universal, but, you know, knowing that the play is going to be performed. And then the other thing, weird thing is now that I play Danny Patton is how do you take your writer's hat off and, you know, perform it? Because that's yeah. a whole different thing as you know, probably better than most. Yeah, certainly you lose the play at some point as the playwright, then you're looking at somebody else directing your piece. And then you have to, you know, you're, yeah, you're slipping into a, a role trying to portray that role, but take it, yeah, taking off that writer and just living it. And where are you located? Pittsburgh. Yeah. I mean, there's a good chance we might get back to Youngstown, but I'd love for you to come see the show, Sean. That would be fantastic. I would love to come see it. I'd love to bring it to Pittsburgh. I, in fact, the first- well, Let's talk. Yes. Uh, the first episode of our current season, we had a gentleman on who does a, a touring one man show called The American Soldier. And I was just thinking, I was like, we oh, got to have... Oh, wonderful. This, yeah, everything comes full circle. Come at Doug, right? Yeah, Doug. Doug he's amazing. One of yeah. my favorite people. Oh, that's fantastic. It's so weird that, you know, I didn't even know that you knew each other and we have it's you on a the small world. Totally. Especially in the theater world, but I'm sure, especially in the veteran theater world. The theater and I think the veteran service community when you bring those two worlds together it's real small right. <laughs> like that, like almost no one into that but um i would love to maybe talk offline about bringing it to pittsburgh so let's do that that'd be wonderful maybe we could do it like a, a a military uh theater weekend here in pittsburgh have doug come up have have your play last outcome come through doug, uh, and I know... I've actually, doug and i've actually talked about that here we go this yeah. is where this is where good good things start um, I want to take a, a step back now because I think we went down the rabbit hole. That's great. But I want to come back to Operation Pineapple Express and, and ask, 
how many people did you eventually get out? And are you still working, if you can say, on yeah. getting people out? I mean, I think between 500 and 750 got out wow. uh, through, through the corridor that we were operating called the Pineapple Express. And if you read the book, you'll see the stories of different people who got through that. And it is the most, it is, you will not be able to, I'm telling you, you'll not be able to put it down once you start because it's just, it's, it's page after, it, it reads kind of, if you've ever seen the movie Dunkirk, yeah. um, it kind of reads like that and it's mm -hmm. different characters moving through. So that would be the number I would estimate. Yes, we are still trying to help uh, others get out. It's slowed to a trickle. Um, we are working with another group called Moral Compass, which is 20 volunteer organizations that are pooling our resources to try to do it. But I'll be honest, Sean, right now, a year plus after the abandonment, it's almost impossible to get Afghans out. And the danger that they're facing is still ever present. And they're being and, hunted. Our yeah. commando partners, our Afghan special forces, many of them have been executed and killed in front of their families. Uh, others have starved to death. Others have deployed over to, you know, they've jumped the border to Pakistan and Iran, and now they're living in just abject poverty. It's, it's, it's shameful, to be honest with you. It's shameful what's happened to our partner force. And most of them were just left to be hunted. They can't go home because their addresses were compromised right. when the Ministry of Defense was raided by the Taliban. So, And their families are still in Afghanistan? Yeah, their families are still with them. So, you know, their ability to, you know, resist is much harder that way. And we did not leave them in a good position to resist so it's just a really series of bad choices that were made. Um, and I wish I had better news on this front, but it's why the book and the play are so important. The play is set against the same backdrop of Afghanistan. When you watch it, in fact, you'll think that it was written after the collapse, but actually it's just because uh, several years ago, I saw where this was heading and- Kind of could you know. predict where, where we were going. Yeah. Yeah. The people that did get out, the, the, the estimate. Did you have any further communication with any of them? Uh, where they're at now, how they're doing? Um, are well, there still the, people on military yeah. bases waiting to be placed? There's still some, you know, so Nizam lives just right down the road. Uh, just talked to him in this morning. He's got his GED. He's got his driver's license. He has a new job. He works with me and my nonprofit and he's yeah. been through story coaching already. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that he'll be able to do story coaching with our Afghan partners that are here and we bring them to our workshops. Mm -hmm. Um, so Nizam and his family are doing pretty well. Uh, a lot of our pineapple passengers are doing pretty well because we've, we've, we've tried to help with resettlement as well. But honestly, Sean, most of our Afghan refugees are not doing well. The, they've overwhelmed the resettlement system by the sheer numbers. And um, they're living in little hotel rooms with very little money, no English speaking capability. And really struggling and and dealing with immense amounts of trauma that they endured over there that has not been resolved same for their children same for their spouses and it's literally like they've changed planets and they don't know where to turn um and it is going to be a long-term problem for this country how can listeners of this podcast civilians how can anybody help them is there a way to, who do you look to? Yeah, look, I would say there's two things. If you want to help, like we have a, we have a relief fund called opereleaf.org. And if you go to scottman.com, it's right there and you can contribute. And we 100% of those proceeds go to Afghans in duress. What does that mean? Our pineapple passengers that are still overseas, if they run into medical conditions or they need to change safe houses, then we, we, we try to use money for that, as well as if there's opportunities to bring them here and they need to, you know, like if we have to pay for a visa or something like that, we have that money to do that. Also, you have families like Nizam's family and Bashir's family who um, they're facing medical situations here in the U.S. and they don't have a car or they don't have enough to pay their rent for a month. We use the funds to help Afghans in duress here as well. And finally, veterans in crisis as a result of this. We've had several veterans go into crisis where they, we needed to weigh in and, and it, there were some financial requirements that needed to be handled to deal with that. Maybe paying a trauma team to go up and work, or covering the travel of a trauma team to go intervene with a suicidal veteran as a result of the Afghan thing. So opereleaf.org is a really good one. If you don't feel like donating money, uh, then I would say, honestly, look in your own community, reach out to the resettlement organizations that are there. Every community has a resettlement organization 
uh, for refugees, call them up and ask where their gaps are and how you can help for the Afghan problem set. And it's, I guarantee you, they'll, they could use the help. How did you become so passionate about helping people? My mother and father, without a doubt. I have to give that credit to them. They were both civil servants and they both taught my brother Travis and me um, to just, you know, remember where you come from and that there's always somebody worse off than you that's struggling more than you. And, and that the only thing that you can take in life with you is what you give away. And, you know, at the end of the day, I just try to remember, I'm just, I'm, I'm just Rex and Anita man's son. And that's all I am. And that's plenty because they, they taught me how to, um, how to give back and, and how to play a bigger game, you know, and that's definitely where that, that came from. And how has storytelling helped you on your journey? Oh my goodness. It has, it has been, it saved my life. You know, it brought me out of a closet where I was holding a 45 and it gave me a way to reconnect and find meaning in my life and, and to answer those diabolical questions that kept spinning in my head about combat and about war. And, and I found a, a way that when I, when I realigned with my narrative and my backstory that I found purpose again, I found that I was able to take my, you know, repurpose my struggles and put them into work in the service of others. I call, I call it the generosity of scars. I'll send, I'd love to send you my TED talk about that called the generosity of scars. And, but I, I, I found that I could even tell stories of trauma and struggle and pain and, and tell them in the service of others. And if I did that and I did it you know, to serve other people and not make it about me, then um, they would locate themselves in my story. And that universal singular of storytelling would allow them to, to find meaning for their own life, to get a sense of themselves and the safety of my narrative. And that for me, it, it just, it created shared perspective. It created context. It gave me a, a way to, to start a for-profit business on leadership, speak from the stage, and then ultimately teach others how to do it. And then I found theater, you know, and which is just, I think one of the most healing mediums out there. And what, frankly, societies have been doing for thousands of years to reassimilate veterans to their community. So, I mean, in every aspect of my life, storytelling um, has been there. And it's not unique. You don't have to be an actor or a playwright. I think storytelling is one of those universal, we're all storytellers. But if we give ourselves permission to do it consciously, whether we served or not, it is, it's a game changer in how we navigate the world. And I think it's important maybe for our audience to know that this wasn't overnight. This is, this is a, a and, I, and it is a continuous thing. It's not like you just years. heal from it and it's over. Okay, good. I'm a storyteller now. It's like, yeah, years. And what advice do you have for, for veterans who may be seeking this or maybe starting that journey? Just to know exactly what you said, that, that storytelling, it, it, it is an iterative journey. In fact, if you think about it, the brain is a, is a metaphorical pattern matching organ. So the brain tells itself a story about every single thing that is put in front of it. And we uh, are the protagonist in our own story every second of every day. Like we are living a living story every day. Our brain is making sense of the world through narrative and we're the hero in the journey. And if we start to think about it that way, that, okay, if that's how our brain makes sense of the world at an unconscious level, it doesn't use PowerPoint, it doesn't use data, it uses narrative to make sense of the world, then why wouldn't we start to tap into that consciously and start to build that cognitive and conscious skill as a storyteller? Because the reality is we've been telling stories for 70,000 years and if you look around today, very few people are using storytelling, you know, in a way that they're actually wired to do it. And when you do it, people can't look away from you, as my friend Bo Easton says, like you are you 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 become so attractive. And I don't mean in the vain sense, but as in like it's what we're wired to tap into when we hear the storyteller, we go into a trance, we're drawn to it. And that's a journey that takes a long time, but it's worth it because at the end of the day, you're going to own every room you walk into. So true. Um, Scott, I, I, I want to thank you for this sort of like, uh, it, it feels like a, a really good steak that we just had. <laughs> um, you know, and, and though, though we have a shortened podcast today, I feel like we filled it just beautifully with so much information. I'm, I'm going to put the links to everything that you gave to me, as well as how to get uh, your book, Operation Pineapple Express. 
uh, here in, in the description. So anybody who's looking for that, uh, just scroll down. Please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. You can reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Scott, I want to give you the, the final word here. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, as we, you know, I just appreciate the, the platform and our veterans offer so much as our moral compass to civil society today. And if you are a veteran, your story is really important. And regardless of, of, of how much trauma or struggle you've faced, I mean, we need to hear it and, and we need your leadership. And to our civilian partners, we need you. We need guys and girls like you, Sean, who recognize that the the integration back into society and the harnessing of veteran horsepower is going to come from civilians like you. Is my dogs like terrorize the end of this podcast? Your dog too. wants to tell his story too. He wants to tell. He wants to tell our story, but it's going right, to be her. civilians who help us, you know, come back across that divide and and platforms like this. And I do hope people will go to scottman.com. All of my body of work is there, and I think folks can can really dive into to a lot of the work that we're doing with veterans and storytelling and and check it out for themselves. I feel like we really just scratched the surface today. Um, I do hope uh, for our Pittsburgh audience that we get you and your play last out uh, to come through here. Uh, we'll certainly work on that through VBC. Um, thank you again for being a part of the podcast. I really appreciate the inspiring hour that I've, I've spent with you and uh, uh, have a wonderful day. It's my honor. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full-service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. DND accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's dandautosalvage.com. Uh, thank you so much to D&D. &D. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being tobacco-free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.